Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, social media director here at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Jerry and Keith Gaynor, managing editor of politics and Washington correspondent at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how do we celebrate the beauty of black hair? All right, dear culture fam. Now, you already know that we celebrate Black History 24-7, 365 days a year on this show. But this week marks the official launch of Black History Month. And we're kicking it off with a bang. Or or a banging, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't already guessed, today's show is about Black hair. From kinks to coils to every texture of curl, our crowns carry a host of history and are also a hallmark of black culture. And let's be clear, there's such a spectrum. You know, black folks, we have the range. So we've got the badass Baldy a la Michael Jordan, Ayanna Presley, or Tiffany Haddish, who, if I'm not mistaken, she did her big chop on IG Live during quarantine last year, to shortcuts like Lapitas and Hallie's classic pixie, braids, blowouts, weaves, and locks, of which I'm a part of that tribe. It's a lot. And today's guest is an expert in the history behind it all. Lori L. Tharps is a passionate writer, author, and educator whose work lands at the intersection of race and real life. She began her journalism career as a staff reporter at Vibe magazine and correspondent for Entertainment Weekly, later writing for outlets like the Philadelphia Inquirer, New York Times, and Washington Post. She has also served as a writer and editor for magazines like Miss, Glamour, Suede, and Essence, just to name a few. Lori prides herself on using words to broaden the conversation about race, culture, and the human experience. She is the award-winning author of three, you heard that, three, critically acclaimed nonfiction books, including Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, a chronological look at the culture behind the ever-changing state of black hair from 15th century Africa to the present-day United States. Word on the street is that she also has a black hair story for every occasion, and we're excited to hear them all. Lori, welcome to Dear Culture. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, welcome, welcome. So I'm really excited that we have a fellow journalist on the show. That's pretty cool. And so as you know, when we are reporting on stories, we often feel a bit of an attachment to them. We're both writers and researchers, and I've certainly had experiences researching a a particular topic and wanting to really do a a deep dive. Could you tell us how you went from researching and writing about a variety of topics to wanting to write a book specifically about black hair? Yeah, actually, it's it's pretty much what you said. Um, the idea for hair story actually started as a as my master's thesis when I went to graduate school um, for journalism, and my advisor actually said, you know, for a master's thesis, you make sure that you pick a topic that you're going to be interested in for a really long time because this was going to be a year long project, and I knew that I wanted to write something that would obviously hold my attention. And I think the best way to do that is something that you're personally invested in. And even though I'd never been a hair person, I was never that person to like spend lots of time on my hair. In fact, I was always the laziest person. Like my go-to style was a ponytail. Um, sometimes two ponytails if I was feeling crazy. But um, 
But the idea of what hair meant and how it separated people by race, meaning um, I knew everything about white hair care. I knew what white people did to their hair because you live in America. You see it on TV. You see it in commercials. You see it in advertisements. But white people literally had no idea if I cut my hair even though it looked longer because I had just relaxed it or if I washed my hair because I was wearing, you know, dreadlocks and they didn't comprehend how my hair worked. There was so much segregation around something so personal um, as hair that I wanted to get to the bottom of it. I wanted to know why um, black people in particular had such complicated relationships with their hair. And so it was like a journalistic interest to get to the bottom of the story, but it was a very personal um, topic that I had lived my whole entire life. Mm, okay, so uh, for our readers, uh, there is a lot of history covered in this book, like <laughs> starting in the 15th century. So clearly, you know, we can't get to all of it today, but I did want to make sure that we touched on a few key pieces in terms of background on traditional West African practices that, you know, are currently influencing black hair culture today. Um, you know, there's I, I start to think of you talked about in the book about like the West African practice of only like very specific, special people touching your hair, which to me, I was like, that sounds like black folks saying don't let nobody play in your head, like, <laughs> leave it alone. Um, you know, you even talked about there being a West African tradition of you not cutting a little boy's hair until after they turn one years old. Didn't know that was a thing. So <laughs> what are some other key themes in African-American hair culture today that originated in West African hair practices? And like specifically, can you talk a little bit about how enslaved folks instituted some of our most well-known hair practices and methods? Yeah. And I think that's actually one of the most um, powerful messages that come that came out of writing this book is recognizing that things that we kind of took for granted about our hair culture are actually coming from our heritage, our African heritage. These aren't, you know, things we made up, this idea of people touching our hair. That's not just us being really paranoid. That actually comes from this historical tradition of there being designated people, special people in each community who were designated hairdressers, and only they were allowed to work on a person's hair or a family's hair or a community's hair. And so it was like a real gift to be a hairdresser, to be the person who felt, had that tradition passed down for their from their um, elders, if you will. Um, one of the things that is like pervasive in many West African cultures, which we discovered in our research, you know, before European contact, was that hairstyles were very elaborate. Um, male hairstyles were even more elaborate than women because your hairstyle represented, you know, what place you had in society. So if you were the chief, you were going to have the most elaborate hairstyle. And your hairstyle was basically a sign of who you were. So your hairstyle um, meant it, it could signify, for example, that, again, you were the chief or that you were a very powerful person or that you were very wealthy or that you were a soldier or you were the wife of a soldier. So, so much of your identity was in your hair. And we found that even... Um, everybody had a hairstyle because you, you wouldn't go out into the world without signifying who you were. So if your hair wasn't done, the only time you would, you know, not do your hair is if you were crazy, 
not even in mourning, like not even if you were super sad because there was a hairstyle for being in mourning. It was literally a sign of, you know, there's literally something wrong with this person. So when we today say something like, girl, you can go out without fixing your hair, like what's wrong with you? Like that comes not just from, you know, we say it's respectability politics, but there really is this tradition of doing our hair because it says who we are. And I think we can see that in a very positive way because we are super creative with our hairstyles, right? We color, we style, we change the style from Tuesday to Wednesday. Like it's all about style and sharing who we are. And, you know, we are often criticized for doing so much with our hair, but it is part of our heritage to show up and show out with our hairstyles. And I want people, like, the idea of writing this book was to let Black people know that they shouldn't feel like um, there's something shameful or or wrong about, you know, wanting to wear different colors, different styles, adding to the hair, um, or or making their hairstyle kind of fit their feelings for that at that time. So, so really we find that there's so many things that we, um, again, may dismiss as just some kind of modern response to pop culture when in fact we're really staying connected to our, to our history. And one other thing I'll add is that because black hair has always been, um, time consuming to style, the, rather than looking at it as a burden, Traditionally, in African cultures, the time to do one's hair was a time for building friendships, for connecting with, you know, community members, which again, if we talk about the barbershops and the beauty parlors, that's still what we do because it takes a long time. You're going to be sitting around for a while. And so that's been really a time for bonding. So even that, you know, the idea, oh, it's going to take me all day to be in the salon. You know, we may complain about it, but it's always been, again, rather than looking at it, you know, traditionally it wasn't, oh, that's terrible. It was now's our bonding time. So I think when we know historically what these practices meant, then we can definitely look at them today, not as a burden, but as a blessing from our ancestors. Laura, you mentioned shame. And uh, I have to ask about something that we all know too well in black communities and that is good hair versus bad hair and it's not specific or it's not just in the black american culture like even in for dominicans they call bad hair bello malo um and i think about my good morehouse brother spike lee's iconic film school days that iconic film uh Rather, the infamous scene with Tisha Campbell where there, where you see the dark-skinned uh, women who had, quote-unquote, bad hair, battling it out with the light-skinned black women who had, quote-unquote, good hair. And, you know, this is something that continues to play out, I think, even in modern times. Even there was a, I remember that documentary that Chris Rock had did, and it really got the conversation going, but it didn't really change uh, necessarily how we uh, categorize our hair. Could you tell us more about how we arrived at this binary categorization between black hair, I mean, bad hair versus good hair? Yeah, absolutely. And it is unfortunate that this is still something that plagues our community. But again, I think with research and in education, we can start and we've actually started already, but we can, you know, work more at diminishing the this notion that there's such a thing as good and bad hair. But um, historically, these terms came about from the um, kind of different types of African-Americans who were enslaved and 
and how their phenotypes uh, manifested. So we know that even before slavery became institutionalized, when Africans were first brought to this country, they were indentured servants and they were freed. And when those black males, most of them were males, were freed, many of them married white women. And so we know that their offspring then were what we would today say were mixed. And obviously their hair texture was looser curled, their their skin was lighter skinned. And so we began this first level of classifying people by their their appearance, by their hair texture and their skin tone. In other words, people knew that these light skinned people were free black people, right? That they were privileged in that way. And then once um, slavery was institutionalized as a race-based institution, and we did have the continuous raping of black women by white men. We had this, again, a second tier of black people, if you will. So after you have a second tier or a second class of enslaved people who are the offspring of, you know, a white master and his African, um, African enslaved person, um, you get this, you know, you get these, these privileged, and I'm using privilege, I'm putting air quotes over privileged because no slave is privileged, okay? That's like oxymoron. But they might have had access to benefits like being in the house instead of being out in the fields. Having access to the house meant often access to learning how to read, access to better food, access to freedom on the other end of master's death or something like that. So, by and by, it wasn't about who's your daddy. It was simply, well, you have light skin, you have loosely curled hair, you must be part white. Therefore, you have all those privileges. And so the hair, the hair texture and the skin tone just became de facto signs of who was going to be privileged in this world. And so if you had that quote unquote good hair, and that light skin, you were privileged. And what happened, which is the unfortunate part, is we, you know, other enslaved people recognized these benefits based on hair and skin tone, and they couldn't change their skin, although there is a lot of evidence that black people were trying to lighten their skin with things like arsenic early on, that they could change their hair textures. And they came up with ingenious ways to straighten their hair, to straighten their children's hair, simply to give them that potential privilege. So really, good hair wasn't about, oh, you're so pretty. It was that good hair might get you some freedom. It might get you some education. It might get you life. Like, my baby won't be worked to death because that's what life was about. It was being worked to death or not being worked to death. And if you had some quote unquote good hair, that could literally be the difference between life and death. So it's really important for people to understand that these terms weren't invented about beauty. There was no enslaved person trying to be cute. They were trying to stay alive. And that's what these terms really originate from. So when we hear them today, it, it's heartbreaking to understand that people actually thought that there was something to emulate about beauty with this hair. It was really, maybe I can live a little bit longer. Maybe my child, I can't because I got real African hair, but maybe my child has a potential for a better life. So that's where those terms come from. And I think the more we educate our young people and our old people, because really and truly we know grandmama and them still be talking about good hair and bad hair because that was their reality. 
Um, but the more we educate people about what those terms really meant, I think we can, you know, be hopeful that they will slowly, you know, diminish in our vernacular. I'm so glad that you said that point about grandmothers, because mine, when I tell you, I'm fighting this lady on a regular basis. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, my grandmother is this elderly Jamaican lady. Like the fact that I have locks, my father also has locks. My brother has locks. She hates them. It, and trying to explain to people, you know, older Jamaican folks are not here for the Rastafarian movement. They are not here for any kind of locks. Um, but to kind of educate her on the whole ideology of like good hair and bad hair and the, just the entire perspective of like, do you real, do you recognize that you're like, you're just, you're, you're regurgitating white supremacist ideologies. Like, like Graham, like what's going on here? Um, my brother has a wife who is Puerto Rican. So she has a very loose curl hair pattern. Um, his, well, gosh, I was like, how many kids does he have now? Uh, <laughs> two of the four have very loosely, you know, loose curls. It's a loose curl pattern, but the youngest, well, and he won't be the youngest that much anymore. I feel bad for him. Uh, <laughs> but the youngest right now, his hair is, it, it is a 4C texture. And I remember the first time, um, you know, that my grandmother like saw him and she's like, oh, he doesn't have the good hair like the other two. And you're like, whoa, whoa, miss. <laughs> so I, and you know, and it's, it's so interesting, just this ideology, because, uh, you know, Jaren and I actually had this conversation um, offline uh, a couple weeks ago about we didn't even see this natural hair movement uh, where there was this appreciation for natural hair, where there's, you know, appreciation for 4C textures until very recently. And even now there's a resurgence of I mean, they're relaxers, but you know, back in the day, you call them perms. There's, <laughs> there's this resurgence of, of perms and everything else. And this whole, I, this whole ideology of like, what is professional by white standards? Would you agree, G? Yeah. I, you know, I have my own relationship, an uh, interesting journey with my hair. I used to have cornrows and I used to work at Fox News. And I remember when I was hired, I expected them to tell me to cut my hair because I figured that they would see it as unprofessional and they, did not, thankfully, but the very fact that I even thought that that could be a problem for me in my place of employment, um, it's, it's heartbreaking when you think about it. And even when you think about straightening hair, we often associate that with just black women. But, you know, what's so interesting to me is, um, and you touch on this in your book about the, about black men also have this, this struggle, or rather, many black men probably don't even realize that when they're wearing their do rags, for example, trying to get, you know, the nice wavy waves in your hair, you know, that that is also rooted in uh, a beauty standard. And I wear a do rag right before I take it off right before I come and film your culture. I wear every, every night. And so we too kind of wrestle with our relationship with our hair. And many of us feel feel attractive and feel for, I'm not speaking for me, but some black men feel more masculine, uh, more desirable to, to women when they have their hair straightened. And, you know, aside from talk, when we, when we associate it with pimp culture, like Snoop Dogg and Cat Williams, we usually don't talk about black men straightening, straightening their hair. And I find that to be really fascinating as well. Yeah. It's, I'm so glad you brought that up, Jaren, because 
um, too often when people talk about black hair culture, black hair issues, they talk about it as if it's a women's issue. When uh, black men were also enslaved, black men have also been part of this white supremacist culture that has denigrated our hair. And, you know, traditionally we saw that, like I mentioned before, that black women would wrap their children's hair. They would wrap their own hair. They would do all kinds of things to straighten their hair to try to get it to be able to style it like the European fashions of the time. Um, and black men were not immune to this. I mean, we had records, we found records of enslaved African men using um, axle grease on their hair to just to straighten their hair or simply shaving it all off, simply not to have that very obvious symbol of Africanness, which again, the hair says, hey, I'm black. Okay, like you could have the lightest skin, but if your hair had a little bit of kink in it, that was kind of the telltale marker of blackness. And the brainwashing that was done to enslaved Africans, very deliberately, mind you, that, you know, you are inferior, you're an inferior being, you're more like an animal than a human. And look at your hair, that just proves it. That's just one of the ways. I mean, it wasn't the only thing, but that kind of continuous um, telling of two black people that they were inferior, they were more like animals than humans. Black men got the same messaging. And you, you know, you see it. I mean, Malcolm X's, you know, autobiography gives that great example, you know, of how he was so into conking and he hated his hair and all of that that he went through for a certain look. Um, we know that black men have these same issues to untangle. The problem is that there's really not the same amount of forums for them to do so. You know, they're not having the hair parties that women are having. They're not having the brunches, the lunches, the YouTube videos and all that other thing, things to unpack this. But they need to as well. And I have to say that the natural hair movement, while it's still a very female led movement, I think it is making pathways and opening doors for men to have these conversations, too. Yeah. So, you know, just to fast forward a little bit to like modern day, because I, like I said earlier, you know, I just I've noticed this resurgence of natural hair care, especially during the pandemic when when we were in lockdown and you couldn't go get your fresh lineup or I, I had to learn how to how to twist these. I, was like, I, don't, I, just, I don't know what to do. Um, but one thing that I think I have loved about just black culture in general and kind of the the journeys that both men and women have had to, and non-binaries, y'all here too, uh, <laughs> that have had to, um, you know, kind of have these different journeys with their hair is how much it is often seen as like an act of resistance, right? So case in point, I think of like, <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, but I think of like Cam Newton and Jay-Z and their locks right now. Don't really, I, I, it's not really my thing, but you know, it is, it, it makes a very big statement. You know, in the sixties, the Afro was the style of the civil rights movement. My hair is going to be big and lovely and, and it's growing. Can you share with us a bit about how, you know, other examples of how black hair, black hair has been used as an act of resistance? Absolutely. Well, I'm going to start with the, um, go back to the civil rights movement because that Afro wasn't actually big and beautiful when it started because it really was, as you said, an act of resistance. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the late 50s, when the civil rights really started, really started, right? Um, what you had were some angry black people who were fed up 
with this idea of respectability politics. They were fed up with this idea that they were told to dress properly, be small, keep a quiet voice, don't make a fuss, and, and you'll get what you want. You'll get your what you deserve. But that wasn't what was happening. They were still getting lynched. They were still being treated like second-class citizens. They still couldn't buy a house. They still couldn't eat at the freaking Woolworths counter and get a freaking hot dog, right? I mean, nothing was what that was promised. And so the idea was... If we're not, if, if we're playing by the rules and we don't get anything that we deserve, then let's stop playing by the rules. And one of those things was let's stop straightening our hair as women to make bl- white people feel comfortable. And as men, let's stop shaving our hair down to, you know, a half a centimeter so that it doesn't quote unquote scare anybody. So the first act of resistance vis-a-vis our hair was just letting it grow, letting it be, be natural. And it, so it wasn't these perfectly quaffed um, afros at first. It really was just what happens when you don't perm your, when you don't straighten your hair. What happens, black men, when you just let your hair grow? Hello, Jay-Z. So it wasn't like they were necessarily, you know, with uh, the, the locks or anything like that, but it was unkempt, unstraightened black hair. And that really stood out and made a statement because white people weren't used to black people showing up um, in their natural with their natural hair, right? And that that said something. Eventually, it became the big round, which was also quite defiant, right? It did make a statement when you saw the Panthers, for example, or Angela Davis with that round afro that stood way up. You couldn't ignore it, especially in mass, in a group of people. Another example of the hair being used um, as resistance is definitely in the case outside of the United States, in Kenya, the um, Kenyan, the Mau Mau warriors who were fighting against British invasion, they let their hair grow into dreadlocks as a, you know, symbol of like masculinity and fierceness, which is where we got the term dreadlocks because when the British saw these Kenyan warriors, their response was like, look at that dreadful hair. You know, the, imagine these fierce warriors with this long, thick dreadlocks. For a British person, that was Quite frightening, right? I mean, that made them look really like a formidable foe. So that's another example. Um, and then, of course, the group Move in the in Philadelphia. It was a group of um, like I don't want to. They call themselves a back to natural movement. And I don't want to say necessarily resistance, but it was they all wore dreadlocks also, and they were like freeform locks more or less. But they were resisting, you know, kind of what popular culture said you had to do. I mean, they, you know, had their, their homeschooled their kids. They, uh, they did have their own weapons in their houses. They had their own ideas of diet and everything else. They basically were separatists for all intents and purposes. And their hairstyles was what set them apart. And people would know if you were part of the move movement. So, so we have these different examples, which of course there's the, I don't know, I guess you would say the negative aspect of that, which still lingers today, is because our hair has been used as a physical symbol of resistance, then today when people wear those same hairstyles, they're often associated with these kind of negative or violent or extreme movements from history, which on the one hand, it's like, you know, fists up for taking control of our own lives with our hair and using it as a symbol. 
But at the same time, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, why can't we get past that and just have these styles as, you know, cultural touchstones, right? So we do have to, you know, deal with the legacy of, you know, our hair being used as a very visual symbol of resistance and today understand why people still have negative reactions to some of these styles because really they invoke fear, which is what they were supposed to do. And and that's a perfect segue, Lori, because there is still discrimination as it relates to black and natural hair. And I think there's no better evidence of that than the Crown Act, which was enacted in 2019, which stands for creating a respectable and open world of natural hair. And the, and the fact that we have to have a law to prevent us, prevent other people who are not us from discriminating against us in our hair. I think that is, um, it just, it kind of just blows my mind. Do you think we'll ever get to a place where black hair is not seen as something disruptive, where black hair is just normal? I mean, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe not in y'all's lifetime, but maybe in my child, my, my daughter's 10, maybe in her lifetime. I definitely think, again, um, Hair Story came out in 2001, and then we updated in 2014. And just the difference between what was considered acceptable between 2001 and 2014 is amazing to me. Um, the natural hair movement hadn't started when we first wrote the book. And if you had asked me, you know, do you think it's ever going to be a time when we see a newscaster with natural hair or when we see black women wearing natural hair on catwalks or, you know, uh, in fashion magazines, in movies? Like, will there ever be, you know, like an Issa Rae, right? I would have said, oh, no, keep dreaming, darling, keep dreaming. But um, but then look, it happened, you know, by 2014, not only did these styles become, quote unquote, mainstream, but you had an entire um, industry, like one of the largest industries in the world, the global industry of, you know, hair care that, you know, jumped right on that bandwagon and supported this quote unquote, natural hair movement, which helped it become a phenomenon, not just something in the black community, right, which helped it become more mainstream and acceptable. So change happens sometimes at a slow pace. It feels too slow. I see that change. I'm excited by the change. I think the change that's happened in the black hair community is instructive for other social change that we want to see happen. I don't think, though, that I can say, again, within my lifetime, that there won't be disruptive black hair events still, because we still live in a white supremacist society. We still live in a society where white culture is the dominant culture. So anytime you have a black hairstyle come up against, you know, hit the white cultural, you know, guidelines or, 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 I don't know, walls, if you will, then there's going to be some sort of disruption. But every hit creates a crack. And every crack is an opportunity for a window, a door to be open. So I see it happening. It's continuously happening. Um, and I think it'll continue to happen, but it's not going to be done anytime soon. Well, Lori, thank you so much for coming on Dear Culture and kicking off Black History Month with us. I think this is a perfect conversation to kind of set the tone. I really hope 
that our listeners really got what I know that me and Shauna got a lot of uh, lessons from this conversation. I hope it lifts the vibration so that we can really uh, learn to accept and love our hair as it is. If you want to learn more about Lori L. Tharps or order her amazing books, visit her website at LoriLTharps.com. That's L-O-R-I, the letter L, T-H-A-R-P-S.com. And of course, for more news and commentary on the culture, visit the Griot's website at www.thegrio.com and follow us on Instagram at DearCulturePod. We want to remind our listeners to support your local black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Dream Girls Fine Hair Imports and Salon. Born and raised in Los Angeles, the Thompson sisters launched Dream Girls in 2006 to help hair clients reach their hair strength and length goals through a healthy hair system and product line. Their five-step healthy hair care system is a key component to achieving their wow factor results and is exclusively used in their salons. Dream Girls holds the principal belief that everyone everywhere deserves to have healthy hair. To learn more about Dream Girls fine hair imports and salon, visit their website at www.dghair.com. That's D as in Delta, G as in Gamma, hair.com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcast at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and co-produced by Taji Senior, Sydney Henriquez-Payne, and Abdul Kadus. 